on today's show. The Protestant states were not out establishing colonies, by and large, in the 16th century. And if you don't have contact with people who need evangelism, you don't do missions. You know, Germany does not establish colonies. Switzerland is landlocked. Sweden, uh, Norway, Denmark, they're not doing colonies in this period. England is starting. When the English establish their, uh, their companies, the charters of all of the companies talk about bringing the gospel to the native peoples. So this was on their radar. Now, how well they did it is a different question. Stay tuned. Hey, listeners, are you interested in free theological training? Midwestern Seminary exists for the church, and that vision to be for the church is the reason that they provide free resources for anyone who wants to grow in their faith. How do they do that? Through the For the Church Institute, which offers free seminary-level education to any individual interested in growing in their knowledge of Scripture, knowing the Lord more deeply, and discerning their calling in ministry. With courses ranging from New Testament and theology to the doctrine of the Trinity, find out if the For the Church Institute is the right solution for you to deepen in your knowledge of Christ. Go to mbts.edu slash FTCI. Again, that's mbts.edu slash FTCI for the For the Church Institute. And while you're there, let them know that the Missions Podcast sent you. And now, on to our show. Greetings and welcome to the Missions Podcast, the show that explores your hard questions on missions, theology, and practice to help goers think and thinkers go. I'm Alex Kochman, Director of Communications and Media with ABWE, joined again here, as always, by Scott Dunford, pastor of Western Hills Church in San Mateo, California. And we are continuing here in the second of our two-part conversation Dr. Glenn Sunshine, who is the leader of Every Square Inch Ministries, appears himself every week on the Theology Podcast and is author of many important things, including 32 Christians Who Changed Their World, just released this year. Go ahead and check that out. We'll also leave a link in the show notes. And speaking of Christians who have changed their world, we're continuing to dive into the issue of what was happening in the missions movement, or was there even one? in the medieval period, especially in the earlier part of that, the time that we think of as a dark period. Uh, But was it that dark? If you haven't listened to part one, you really should go back in your feed or scroll back on the website to find that because that'll set the stage here. And Scott, I'm excited to see what happened after this early medieval period is, is were people building on these missionary efforts, right? Or or Mm, were they forgotten? Because I think for a lot of us today, we think of missions history as, as starting with someone like William Carey, to be honest. Well, sure. You know, and, and it, you know, you and I, I mean, you're, you're a Cokeman and, uh, I'm a Dunford with, uh, with my, <laughs> my dad's side is also Miller, which is German. So we've got these, you know, we've got this European ancestry in our story and, and we just assume, oh, it's always been Christian. And then you realize, and you're listening to these stories of medieval, uh, Christianity, you realize, no, there was like a massive mission movement to see, these tribes that were, you know, slaughtering human beings and worshiping all sorts of gods, becoming Christian. So we we kind of left off talking about Boniface. And uh, so, so Glenn, what happened then between like the Boniface period of time and where where we end up in the Reformation? Yeah, well, the the key here is that Europe gets converted to Christianity, 
and we're dealing primarily with Western Europe here, but it's also true of the East. I haven't talked much about this, Mm -hmm. but the Orthodox world is sending out missionaries during the early medieval period to the Slavic peoples. Uh, They're converting uh, first uh, the Kievan Rus, the people around modern day Ukraine. They'll push, you know, they'll push further. And there's this sort of boundary area between people with their loyalties going to Constantinople versus Rome. And then you have the Church of the East, which is centered in uh, what was then called Persia, that's sending missionaries through Central Asia. You know, so there's a lot going on there. But from our perspective, looking at it from the the angle of Western Christianity, you know, Christianity coming out of the Latin world, right. once Western Europe is um, is largely Christianized, there's little more from their perspective for them to do. Mm. There isn't a lot of effort toward missions work. Um, mm. Instead, what you get are threats from the South, from the Muslims. And trying to figure out how to respond to that, um, so you see, mm-hmm. you see the Crusades as sort of a counterattack against Muslim expansion. You do get some people like Ramon Lull, who is going to advocate not Crusade but missions to the Muslims. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if I remember right, he dies doing this. A little later, you'll find Franciscan and other missionaries traveling along the Silk Road after Marco Polo into China, mm-hmm. you know, and trying to do some evangelism there. But there isn't much of a focus on evangelism. The closest people that you have in Europe that are not Christianized are the Baltic pagan tribes. You know, they're still pagans moving through the 15th century. And unfortunately, the, uh, the attitude toward them, and this is as much political as anything else, is that the proper thing to do is conquer them and, and force them into the church. Mm-hmm. So you actually have crusades declared against them and so on. Uh, these crusades were largely a favor from the Pope to the Teutonic Knights who controlled Prussia and wanted to expand their territory. You know, mm-hmm. So there's, there's a lot of unfortunate things that are going on there. What I hear you saying throughout this is that when the state's getting involved in the expansion of Christianity, it tends to mess it up. Yeah, that, that is emphatically the case. <laughs> as, as government often does. Yeah. But there's another part of it as well. One of the key things that determines whether or not missions activity occurs is whether there is some form of reasonable contact with the people that you are trying to reach. So when there aren't, you know, when everybody in your country, except maybe a small community of Jews, my ancestors, when everybody else is Christian, you're not you're not really going to be thinking much about missions. And what happens is you start turning your attention inward. Naturally. Or you get a you you go to crusades or something like that. Now the interesting thing is this the, where you see this changing is in the early modern period where the Spanish suddenly discover that there's this big chunk of dirt out across the Atlantic that they didn't know about. You know, and they they begin colonization and a lot of the colonization ends up being really exploitive, frankly. Right. Mm-hmm. But you also see people who are opposed to the way the Spanish are treating the native peoples and who work very hard to end this. Mm. Bartolomé Las Casas is the best known of these, but there are others as well. And what will end up happening ultimately is that the Spanish Empire will declare that. 
Um, everybody in their colonies are Spanish citizens and have the full rights of Spanish citizens. Great. But in, term, in terms of the mission activity, they do start trying to convert the locals, but they take this idea, I would argue, that they take the idea of Gregory the Great that we talked about last time of contextualization, they're going to take it too far. And what you're going to begin getting is a, at least on a popular level, a kind of syncretistic Christianity that has as much contact with traditional folk beliefs and maybe even folk religion mm. as it has to do with Orthodox Christianity. So an example of that would be like voodoo that we see in the West Indies. It's combining Romanism with tribal religion. Right. Ultimately, you know, that's an extreme example, but it, but it's there. Uh, voodoo, uh, Santeria, there are a whole bunch of these. You, you don't even have to go that far. Even sort of the, po the popular Catholicism, even where it's not going into these more heavily syncretistic things, there's very little in the way of actual communication of the gospel or even really much in the way of teaching, say, the Roman Catholic Catechism or anything like that, the people are left largely in ignorance, which means that although they are nominally Catholic uh. and they'll go to church and things like that, there's still a boatload of folk mm -hmm. beliefs that end up helping shape what they're doing. Nonetheless, we have to at least acknowledge that they are, the Spanish are making an attempt to convert the people in their colonies. Yeah. The frankly, the people who are running the colonies are much less interested in religion than they are in in, in cash. Right. You know, and how to turn a profit out of this, and that's that's also part of the problem. Now, you will find a lot of people will talk about the utter lack of Protestant interest in missions in the uh, 16th century, and you certainly don't see much. You don't. It's not that you don't see any, but you don't see a lot of Protestant missionary activity in the 16th century. Sure. Nothing else was happening for Protestants in the 16th century, right? Yeah. But you know what else wasn't happening for Protestants? Colonization. Mm. The Protestant states were not out establishing colonies, by and large, in the 16th century. And if you they don't... surviving. Yeah. And if you don't have contact with people who need evangelism, you don't do missions. Glenn, can I throw something in yeah. real quick? Too? We'll have to and deal with can, the English case in a moment, but throw this in first. Please, please do. But also, I mean, is is part of is part of what you're sharing here helping us to have a judgment of charity mm -hmm. for our brothers and sisters in ages past? Because it is easy uh, as people in the missions world to look back on church history and say, "Well, they should have been doing missions." But would you have been doing missions if you were a Protestant in a country that just became a Protestant country? Not not more than a few decades after Luther uh, nailing his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg uh, Chapel. I mean, it, right. we, we do need to hold ourselves um, uh, accountable as well and, and recognize sometimes there are external factors on the church that might prevent mission. And God's sovereign over all of that. I, I think I hear some of that in the application of what you're sharing. Right. I, I think that that's absolutely true. But again, remember, they're not colonizing states. You know, Germany does not establish colonies. Switzerland mm. is landlocked. They're mm. not establishing colonies. Sweden, uh, Norway, Denmark, they're not doing colonies in this period. England is starting. 
And actually, interestingly enough, you get a little bit of, of uh, Huguenot activity in Brazil. The French will send out a mixed mm-hmm. Catholic and Huguenot party to try to colonize in Brazil. The Huguenots, interestingly enough, were interested in trying to convert the natives. The Catholics were interested in exterminating the Huguenots. <laughs> and that's, in fact, what ends up happening. The English... When the English establish their uh, their companies, the the uh, that's what they called the the people who were going out as colonies. They had chartered companies. Right. The charters of all of the companies talk about bringing the gospel to the native peoples. Hmm. So this was on their radar. Now, how well they did it is a different question. They weren't always very active in trying to evangelize the natives, though it is worth noting that in Puritan New England, uh, you get people like David Brainerd um, and you get others who are actively working at converting the native. Now, we're in the 18th century now, so we're a little later, but they are actively working at converting the native populations. If you read the accounts of King Philip's War even earlier, you will you will see people talking about, quote, praying Indians. The praying Indians were the Indians who had converted to Christianity. Now, they weren't really wild about the praying Indians because they maintained their own culture. They didn't become mm. English. <laughs> right. but Kind of a roadblock to the uh, colonialist project in some well, ways. Well, yeah. And unfortunately, in this period, Christianization equaled Europeanization. Right. Because the only example that they had of what Christianity looked like was Europe. Right. So it was making them like Europeans. So the praying Indians were not trusted because although they were, they said they were Christians, they were not behaving like Englishmen. They were still living in the, uh, in the, you know, in sometimes in separate villages, but they're still living like the native population did. So there was a question in their minds of whether or not they were really Christians. But nonetheless, you do see the effort is being made to convert them. I think it's really kind of unfair to accuse the Protestants of being uninterested in this. It's largely, it, again, it's largely a question of access to the mission field. And that's so important for us to remember, as like Alex pointed out, just trying to look at this period with some charity. Mm-hmm. But if we could start, we, you know, when we have a little bit of time left, and I think it'd be really helpful for us to just pick your brain a little bit. But what are some of the key takeaways? You know, when you look at this period of time, and certainly we, we look at a guy like Boniface and admire his courage, um, but it's easy for us to look back at this time period and go like, well, you know, was it? you know, was, was the gospel being faithfully proclaimed? Was it being passed on or, or was, was there some mixture of error with it? It's hard for us to determine, you know, at least Alex and I, but I mean, you probably have an opinion stronger than that on it. But what are the things that you would say, I wish missionaries today would learn these things about, you know, from this period of time and the, the saints from that period of time? Yeah. What can we take away from that? Yeah. Well, the, the mistake that ends up being made and by the way, the beginnings of the modern missions movement with Carrie, mm-hmm. it occurs where the British have colonies. Right. The mm-hmm. second wave occurs un- under uh, Hudson Taylor, occurs where the British have colonies. You know, this access mm. thing is really important. But, but what I would say is that, first of all, did they have error in their theology? Yes. Do we have error in our theology? Yes. Yes. 
Confir- you do? Yeah. Yeah. Don't <laughs> tell anyone. Now, now, <laughs> which ones? One? I want to know. Now, okay. now here, yeah, here, we're not I, recording, I though. Yeah. Here, here, of course. Here, of course. Here's, here's right, the problem. Yeah. Um, if we're honest and, and actually think about who God is, we've got to realize that mm. our pea brains are incapable of really getting it right. Yeah, it's important. And as a result, if... I can give myself grace to be wrong about some things. I don't know what they are because if I knew what they are, I'd change. (laughs) If I can give myself grace to have blind spots and trust that God will give me grace as well, we should do the same for the people of the past. We need to remember that evangelical Christianity is a Johnny come lately on the scene. It really develops in the 18th century in Britain. Yeah. We've got 1700 years of church history before what we think of as the gospel um, emerges as sort of a, you know, the whole conversionist thing and all of that, uh, that that's a relatively recent phenomenon in church history. Right. People were getting converted before conversionism right. had really been, been worked out and, and honestly is still being worked out. And there's, there's good and bad and ugly with that. Mm. Um, sometimes it's treated well and other times not applied well. I, I think a, another point of application here I'd love to hear you comment on is the issue of access. Even today, access is something we think about because we define unreached people groups, not just as those who aren't uh, converted, but those who don't have access to the gospel uh, in terms of their neighbors, in terms of access to scripture and, and all of those sorts of things. We are at the tail end of the American empire, and we've been given a unique opportunity to travel throughout the world and to have access to really anywhere in the globe, who knows how long that will continue to be the case. Uh, things in the West, just in general, I think it's fair to say they're not improving at the moment. Will we be found faithful where we're in a period of history where it's not colonialism, but through air travel and, and globalization, we have a lot more access to the world than we've ever had. And and that puts us in a maybe a similar position. I, mm-hmm. I would actually point out another part of this. There are many countries that are closed to Christianity. Those countries that are closed to Christianity have a lot of people who have come to the U.S. and are living right here, mm-hmm. Yeah, which means we have access to people groups in the United States that we can't yeah. get to on the mission field. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something we need to take very, very seriously. If we're interested in reaching these people groups, they're right here. So- um, and particularly groups from from closed countries. Mm-hmm. So that that's one thing to consider. I, I, I take a fairly ecumenical view of things. Um, you know, when I'm looking at the past, basically, if you can sign on to Nicene Christianity, I'm good with you. We can work together. Mm-hmm. I may disagree <laughs> with you about a lot of stuff, but that's enough to as a base to work from. Yeah. So the Assyrian, the so-called Chaldean Church, or the Assyrian Christians, or the the Iraqi Church. Um, they're Nestorians. I don't care. They sign on to Nicene Christianity. I, I can work with them. We have to remember that our doctrine says that we're justified by faith in Christ. We're not justified by believing we're justified by faith in Christ. Yes. And there are a lot of people who I would, I believe in all of these churches who have genuine faith in Christ but who do not necessarily understand the gospel the way we do, who may not accept the idea of justification by faith, but who are justified nonetheless because their faith is in Jesus. And that's how I think we need to look not only at churches ecumenically now, but at these people in the past. So, Something that we've discussed on the show before, 
you look at nominal Christianity throughout the world and all of these places where there've been established churches for uh, for centuries and some of the places that you've made reference to, is your glass half full or half empty uh, with regard to something like nominalism? Are, are we looking that purely through evangelical eyes and saying like, well, they don't articulate the gospel exactly right, and so we need to evangelize them. And by all means, let's share our understanding of the gospel with them because we think we do have an accurate understanding of the gospel. By God's grace, we've inherited these riches through the Reformation and continual understanding of Scripture that's happened over the past many centuries. But also, can we have a glass half full and say, well, they know the name of Jesus Christ. They know to call God Father. They know the Holy Spirit is given to them by the Father and the Son. There, there's something there that we have in common. At the very least, it is a foundation to to be built upon and not not spat at and not disparaged. Yeah, because that's God's work throughout history in laying that foundation. That's the that's the lesson from the Irish Church going to the continent. What you had was a largely dead church on the continent, corrupt. Um, people were living in complete ignorance of the gospel and all of that. And what happens? You get a group of guys from Ireland who show up, who are on fire, who are absolutely sold out and serious about the faith, who are uncompromising about living it out in their own lives, and who are unapologetic about telling people about it. And what happens? Mm -hmm. People begin flocking to it. Because what they're seeing are people who really believe something. It's something that's sort of familiar, but this is looking really different. And it's looking different because they're sold out, they're committed, and they're uncompromising. And this attracts people. People are attracted to those who are, well, good leaders, but who are also demonstrate by their life and work words that they're committed to something and that are inviting you to come join them. That's what the Irish did. They re-evangelized the continent that was already nominally Christian. Mm. That's largely the point of that story. And in the yeah. process, they laid the foundation for transformation of the culture on all kinds of different levels in a few centuries. It took time, but it happened. So help me resolve this, you know, what seems in my mind a little bit of a contradiction, which I'm sure it's not. But, you know, on the one hand of recognizing, OK, there is a Nicene Christianity, as you as you put it, but also and, and how do we work together? But also this idea of the fact that like in those times, the, the Irish, the Irish had to go re, re evangelize areas that were nominally Christian. Um, right. You know, how, how do we reconcile that? Or at least how do you try to reconcile that? I am willing to work with anybody who is serious about their faith that accepts at least the basic doctrines of Christianity. The key phrase is serious about their faith. The problem right. is the vast majority of people in churches, especially in places where there are state churches, the vast majority of them are what you've described properly, I think, as nominal Christians. They are not people mm -hmm. who genuinely take their faith seriously. So you're not promoting nominalism. You're saying we need to, we still need to evangelize nominal Christians. Right. Yes. Because we need, or at, at the very least, the most generous way of putting it is we have to call them to live what they say they believe. Mm. Yeah, right. call them to discipleship. Right. Yeah, right. And interestingly enough, when you look at the revivals, when you look at um, 
you know, the, the Wesleyan revival, the evangelical revival, the Great Awakening, all of those took place in churches. Mm-hmm. And what they were, in essence, was a call to the people to take their faith seriously, to turn away from mm-hmm. living a life that largely ignored the faith and to make it central. The, ent- the entire point of conversion originally in evangelical conversionism was to convert people from nominal Christianity to a committed Christianity. That's really what it was mm-hmm. about. So even our revivals are the sorts of things that, you know, in a lot of ways that, that the Irish were, were doing on the continent. And that when we're dealing with places like Europe, uh, we largely need to do now as well. Although in Europe, with the increasing Muslim population, we've got a, um, another entire uh, mission field with that. Glenn, help me with something else too. On the order of Scott's question, uh, I'm I'm with you. Uh, my my nominalism glasses is half full. I can rejoice in the the legacy of Christendom, despite the fact that you'll obviously have uh, what what right now in in many parts of for instance, Europe, it's kind of an empty shell of what once was, right? But I can still rejoice that there's a foundation there and that people can can still know Christ savingly in some of these places where perhaps the gospel was even more vibrant in the past. But what do you do with the fact then that oftentimes on the mission field, who you find is more open to the gospel, sometimes it's the total pagan. Sometimes it's the person that, that hasn't been touched by the gospel culturally at all. How do we hold those things together? The fact that uh, so much of a foundation has been laid historically, and yet where we see the, the greatest, most explosive growth of Christianity is in parts of the global South that maybe never even had it at all. Are, are those two facts in tension, in your opinion? We, we're in uncharted territory in the West in that we're dealing with a truly post-Christian culture. And that may, in fact, be a harder area to reach than a completely pagan culture. I suspect mm. it is because people don't take G.K. Chesterton's words to heart. He said Christianity has not so much been tried and found wanting as been found hard, difficult, and therefore left untried. <laughs> Um, right. Most of them fall into that trap. They think, ah, we've been there, done that Christianity. <laughs> it hasn't done anything good at all. Now, the history of that is completely bogus. Uh, Christianity has done more good for the world than anything else has. But people don't know that and they don't believe it. And so we're dealing with people who basically say, been there, done that, got the T-shirt, don't want to go back when they've never actually been there or done that. That's a much, I think that's right. a much more difficult nut to crack than the people who have never heard the gospel in the first place. Mm-hmm. You'll notice what I was talking about were people who are still in churches. You know, the people who are still in churches who are at least nominally Christians, that may be something that you can build on. They think they're still Christian on some right. level, yeah. The people who are post-Christians are much tougher, it, at least it seems mm-hmm. to me. And I would argue, actually, this is a perhaps an entirely different conversation. I would argue we need to have an entirely different approach to apologetics because the old apologetic no longer works because we're, well, for a whole lot of reasons, but, but so that, that's how I would resolve the tension. You work with what you've got in a post-Christian culture. You've got a really tough road to hoe. If you've got people who are at least identify as Christians, that's something you can conceivably build on and pagans, you just breach. 
Well, this has been a fascinating discussion, and we probably need to wrap this up, at least for now. Um, but Glenn, h- how can people find out more about you if they want to learn more, follow up, even reach out to you? Uh, how can they best do that? Okay, I have a ministry, 501c3, called Every Square Inch Ministries. Uh, the website is esquareinch.org, E-S-Q-U-A-R-E-I-N-C-H.org. Uh, there's a contact me button there. Uh, there's the Theology Pugcast, which I uh, I do every week with a couple of other other guys and occasional guests. I also contribute articles uh, to Breakpoint Commentaries a month, so at breakpoint.org. Um, and I'm working as well with Reflections Ministries, reflections.org, and I have some things up there as well. Well, very good. And uh, perhaps even uh, 32 Christians who changed their world, that might be a, a good uh, first step for somebody to sink their teeth into church history. And and before we go uh, to our listening family, I do want to just wholeheartedly recommend uh, the Theology Podcast. It's one of those uh, podcasts that I, I listen to every week uh, whenever a new episode comes out. And if you've found this enriching world, there's, there's a lot more where that came from. And so we just hope that's encouraging uh, for everyone that enjoys things that we talk about here each week, theology, missions, practice, culture, and all things of that nature. But we thank you for joining us today. If this was helpful to you, go ahead and leave a positive rating and review in your podcast platform of choice. Remember, the Missions Podcast is a ministry of ABWE. To learn more about ABWE, go to abwe.org and take your step in discipling the nations today. Until next week, we'll see you then. Thank you for being a part of the Missions Podcast.